listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And I'm Jordan McGillis, Deputy Director of Policy here at IER. And joining us today is Dr. Ellen Wald. Dr. Wald is the president of Transversal Consulting and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. She's the co-host of the Energy Week podcast, and she writes weekly columns that appear at Investing.com and Forbes. And she's the author of Saudi Inc., which presents a history of Saudi Arabia through the central figure of Aramco. Dr. Wald, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be back. Yeah, so we wanted to reach out to you because uh, Jordan caught a series of your tweets where you uh, were basically pointing out the important role of plastics in uh, this crazy COVID world that we're living in right now. Um, so, yeah, just to start, you just want to point out, you know, what jumped out to you and what brought that to your attention. Yeah, so I've actually been thinking about this for a little while because um, right before this whole uh, kind of coronavirus thing got started, there was a big push uh, to get rid of single-use plastics. If you remember, there is all of this, you know, this city is banning plastic straws and that city is banning plastic silverware and, and all, uh, all of this, this kind of stuff, plastic bags. And people were talking about how this could really have an effect on um, plastic manufacturing and, and so on and so forth. And it's always been hard to figure out like what percentage of plastics manufacturing actually goes to single use plastics as opposed to say like the big stuff like the coatings that they put on the window of your car, which is, you know, a much bigger component. But still, um, you know, everyone has a sense that that is an important component, especially because it's stuff that we see. And, um, and then suddenly, you know, coronavirus hits and that's like, totally out the window. Forget it. Everyone is now into single-use plastics, throw it away, get it away from me. It might be contaminated. And um, I think that's a significant concern and definitely going to have an effect on pollution and ocean pollution in particular, which seems to be where a lot of this stuff um, winds up. But um, really what what occurred to me, I was actually uh, watching the news uh, while I was working out. So uh, we could call it maybe an adrenaline-fueled tweet (laughs) storm. And uh, they were showing, uh, and and they've had like a reporter outside of the manufacturing facility and I think Kalamazoo, Michigan, waiting for the first trucks of the vaccine to pull out of the the factory to go to hospital. So it's been a really hyped event. And so they finally had gotten to this hospital in, um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in and they were in the, the room where they're going to store them and the reporters there and the head of the, you know, pharmacy or whatnot is there and they're unpacking these boxes and they're putting these little cases of vials into this refrigerator that's going to refrigerate them. It says like negative 70 on the refrigerator and I'm looking around the room and there is plastic everywhere. It's like plastics just exploded into this room. You've got you know, each each vial, and they're showing how the vials are packed in these boxes. Um, they've got plastic peanuts underneath each case. Then the boxes themselves, uh, the cases are encased in styrofoam. And then I, I, I started thinking about it, and it's like everyone is praising the scientists, and I've even heard them praising the UPS drivers and, you know, the pilots who are going to fly this stuff. And that's all great. But one of the things that you have to realize is that absolutely none of this would be even remotely possible without fossil fuels. And it's not just because it requires energy and gasoline and diesel and jet fuel to transport these things, but also because 
fossil fuels are the feedstock to make plastics and to make the styrofoam. And um, as I was informed after I, I finished my, my little tweet storm was that also um, they provide the components for refrigeration. So, you know, we need power for refrigeration and most likely that power comes from natural gas fired power plants because, you know, that's what I think the, most of the country is running on right now. Although there could be nuclear, could be hydro. But chances are some of that comes from natural gas. But also the, these things are the feedstocks that make refrigerants. They also make the plastics that go into the gloves that the nurses who are going to be administering this vaccine are wearing and the syringes. We don't use glass syringes anymore. We use plastic syringes. And all that stuff is also going to get thrown away, right? Every single person who gets that vaccine, they're going to throw away a lot of plastic for every because it's not hyg considered hygienic to reuse this kind of stuff. And so I think it's important for Americans and also everyone in, in the world who's going to be getting this to realize that without the fossil fuel industry and particularly without cheap fossil fuels, it really is cheap, inexpensive fossil fuels, this vaccine rollout would be completely impossible. It just, it, it couldn't happen. Yeah, no. So Jordan is based out in California and I'm here in DC. So, I mean, just recognizing that perspective is refreshing to both of us where, you know, just recognizing that the fossil fuel industry, you know, plays an important part in just our general well-being is uh, to say that it's overlooked would be an understatement, I guess. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting that when people talk about the fossil fuel industry, it's almost always the energy side of things. And uh, when you hear people talking about banning these things like there's just no thought given whatsoever to it's just sort of bizarre and i wonder you know just what are your thoughts on like why why does it seem to that the industry always gets overlooked it's odd it is odd i think that the industry itself um you know i think a lot of the the plants and the petrochemical industry that that makes this stuff they have a lot of, of issues you know because i think they tend to get vilified because it's a messy process you know you don't want to live near a plant uh and, and you know they're always kind of getting oh well you're causing this in the wastewater and this and then the water supply and so i think they like to maintain a kind of low profile but one of the interesting things is um it's actually that this increase in plastics manufacturing because of coronavirus is actually showing up now in the data and in the energy usage that um, we've got in the United States in the latest um, monthly statistical review um, that's for November from API actually showed uh, a big increase, uh, well, big in terms of like it was statistically significant or it, looked, it was very significant increase in the use of naphtha in the US. And one of the things that naphtha is used for is for uh, to make diluents, which are then a component uh, that goes into making all kinds of different uh, components of plastics. And so I think that, um, you know, we're, we're actually seeing this and it's all happening. I'm sure it's happening elsewhere in the world, but it's definitely happening in the United, <clears throat> excuse me, in the United States. And that's a significant component. And people don't, people don't realize this. Most people don't know where plastics are made. Um, you know, there's a lot going on to kind of vilify plastics. Remember, um, a while ago, I think Lego committed to, you know, we're, we're not going to make our Legos out of plastics anymore. And I was like, really? Well, what, what are you going to use? Now, it is possible to like make really hard substances out of like bamboo, for example. But, um, you know, and, and bamboo is a renewable resource if you 
go ahead and plant it, but it's a lot more expensive and a lot more difficult to make right now. Plastics are pretty cheap to make and they can really be, I, I mean, I don't want to like mince words to say they can really be life-saving because, um, you know, there are a lot of places in the world that are not going to be able to afford, you know, bamboo containers, but there is a potential for them to afford, uh, you know, plastic containers um, and, and things like that. And so um, while there is a push to reduce the amount of plastics we use because they can be, you know, pollute, they can people pollute them and, and, you know, they fill up landfills and they don't biodegrade and things like that. All of that is true, except we've definitely seen that when push comes to shove, people want to, people feel safer using those plastics. So while you might be okay, you know, using that cloth, you know, bag in your refrigerator to hold your vegetables, you don't want a cloth or you don't want a glass syringe giving you a vaccine. You want that nurse, you don't want her wearing like cloth gardening gloves. You want her wearing latex gloves or him, you want them wearing latex gloves. You, you want all of that, um, that that's at the highest levels of sterility when people are talking about their health. And I think that we've kind of shown that this movement is almost uh, like a, I want to say a decadent movement, but it, it kind of a little bit is. And that when push comes to shove, people, that, that's, that's going to be the first thing to go. And I do think that, um, you know, certainly the plastics industry could capitalize on this a little bit and kind of show people that, hey, we're a big part of this. You may not realize it. I think a lot of people don't realize all of the things that are made out of hydrocarbons. Yeah, I would argue that it's really ignorance that's at play here. Uh, most people simply aren't aware that um, the plastics that surround us each day and that are so valuable to us do come from these same raw materials. Uh, now, one question that I personally have, because I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on this side of things, is are plants that are manufacturing plastics buying their crude material from the same sources that might be selling to a refinery that would turn this into gasoline or something like that? How does that aspect of it work? So um, in general, so I think um, actually the EIA has a really good infographic about this. The Basically like the, you take a barrel of crude oil and it kind of breaks it down in terms of what component becomes gasoline, what component becomes jet fuel, what component becomes diesel, and then what component gets pushed into plastics and petrochemical manufacturing. And there's other things like they manufacture fertilizers and, and other things uh, as well, not just plastics. Um, and but the interesting thing is that I, since coronavirus, that ratio has started to change. So um, it, to, to manufacture plastic, you can use crude oil, okay? Um, but, or you can also use natural gas, or you can use NLGs, you, you, can, you can use different things. In fact, uh, the Saudis want to pioneer a plant that will basically convert crude directly to plastics. Uh, and they, they, there's like a big kind of uh, ceremony about this, inaugurating this plant. They haven't, uh, they've, they've kind of backtracked a little bit on it since the price of oil went, went, went way down, but um, they, they've really uh, pioneered new manufacturing techniques to basically convert crude oil directly to, um, you know, to products, to plastic products or to the components that become plastics, as opposed to having to use the natural gas. So a lot of it is done from natural gas feedstock, but some is done from oil. And it, it really depends. And I think that the, um, but what's interesting to see is that um, we were having a really big problem when coronavirus started because jet fuel and 
diesel fuel went way down, but not as much as, as gasoline, but all of the refineries were still producing like the same ratio of products. And so we have major jet fuel overhang, like way too much jet fuel, but that's now shifted and our refineries are proving more resilient to demand basically than, than we thought. And so they're able now to produce less jet fuel and more of other kinds of products that we need, like more naphtha to make more of these kinds of, of components or more of, of the other kinds of constituent components. Cause it, it goes through like several stages before it actually gets to, to plastic um, or to the, the components of it, but we're able to kind of produce more of what's, what's actually needed. And I think that's a, a, a pretty um, significant thing because in the United States, a lot of refiners were very old and um, you know, we haven't really built a new refinery in the United States of any significant um, capacity since I think the 70s. Now we can retrofit our refineries um, that we already have. It's very difficult. The permitting process is really tough, um, but I do think it shows that, um, you know, there is resiliency in that sector and um, that is a potential growth area. Yeah, I think that word resiliency is important there. Uh... It's interesting because if you go back a couple months ago when we were, you know, for the day that we saw like negative prices and stuff, you had all these doom and gloom <laughs> narratives about the industry. And obviously, you know, there's been stress on the industry with COVID and everything. You outlined it sort of there. But um, what you're laying out there sort of turns that story on its head and says, well, you know, the, these companies are resilient and are able to look for new opportunities, you know, given – uh, the sort of uh, supply gluts and things that they're facing right now. And it's an overlooked um, side of things. Everybody just sees, you know, the the, the oversupply and um, the price movement and just assumes, well, th everything will carry on the way that it was or the industry will, won't look for new opportunities and things. And um, obviously that's not the case. And there's an opportunity for some companies to demonstrate that they may be more resilient than others. It's it's not as if the industry is a monolith. Exactly, and and you know we've seen some really you know distressing uh, things. So we've seen, for example, Shell is uh, shutting down a refinery that it has had in Louisiana for a while. Um, that that move to shut it down actually predates uh, COVID. So uh, it was that that was coming. They tried to sell it. Nobody wanted it, and they're just going to shut it down now. But um, you know, it also highlights the fact that the, the petrochemical industry in the United States it's not wholly centered in the Gulf Coast, but a lot there is a lot in the Gulf Coast, particularly in um, the Louisiana um, Gulf Coast. And that area was very, uh, was hit really hard this um, season by hurricanes. I mean, there were several hurricanes. There's one that was really, really bad that, that hit that area that actually, um, there was some damage to some of the, to a petrochemical um, plant there. Um, you know, there was a big fire, I think, and, um, and there was some damage. But uh, overall, you know, it's, that that area really was hit um, many many times by by hurricanes, um, and yet still um, it 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 has kind of come back, and um, we're able to produce the products that we need. I think the low cost of feedstock, low natural gas prices, um, we've got more pipelines now in that area, so it means that they can access a lot of the natural gas that's being produced there. Um, but one of the other interesting things is that um, you know there's still a lot of flaring that goes on in the oil producing regions, especially in Permian and, and in that area. And, um, you know, the less flaring you have, the more of that natural gas you can capture and then use as safe 
you know, uses as power generation, as feedstock, and petrochemicals and such. And so um, I think, you know, there's going to be more movement, uh, particularly with the new administration, to um, cap flaring because flaring really produces a lot of methane and that's not so good for, for the atmosphere. It's not good for the people who live there. It's not good for, for the atmosphere. And, um, you know, there are a bunch of ways to reduce flaring. You can just produce less, which is kind of the number one way, or you can have, you can build more infrastructure in and more pipelines that can capture that natural gas and, and we can use it. And so if there is demand for those products uh, and we can, can get that infrastructure going and we have been making strides towards that, but I think we still need, um, you know, more uh, to, to put more effort into that area. In, uh, you know, we can have robust production and we can capture the natural gas that would be flared and use it to produce these kinds of things that I think we're going to see that the world decided they actually really do need. Alex, if I recall correctly, you wrote an article six to eight months ago that uh, discussed a company that was um, was working on this very problem. Yeah, I mean, there, there's new technology that's sort of emerging there where uh, they have trucks where they can drive out and uh, at the well site and capture some of the methane and stuff. Uh, um, not too well versed in it, but there was an article that caught my eye about uh, a new company that was was doing that. And um, certainly, as she outlined there, it's something that's in process, but like most things, there are um, some regulations and stuff that are blocking permitting and there's... But that's a really cool, uh, cool concept and, and idea, um, especially because, you know, when we had serious pipeline, you know, backlogs and we had serious uh, problems with that. Trucking, uh, trucking of oil and stuff was became, you know, big a big thing. It's not preferable uh, because it's really not the safest way to do it, and the trucks are very heavy and they can rip up the roads and all sorts of stuff. But uh, it's certainly better than than letting it be flared into the atmosphere. Um, you know, we should. It, you know, I think we see it. It's not really necess- it, it is a finite resource. We keep discovering more and more and more and, and you know we're, we're not really running out anytime soon but at the same time if you flare it it's a waste it's really like a, a complete waste uh, and so you know the more we can capture that the more we can you know we're we're shipping LNG now to like 30 different countries or something like that and so you know you can you can liquefy it uh, you can turn it to dry gas you can you can send it all over there's so much that we can do with this um, but certainly you know, uh, particularly if we want to uh, push our manufacturing uh, sector, that um, manufacturing plastics and things like that is absolutely a, a big thing. I mean, how many times do you pick up something and it's a, like some piece of plastic and it says made in China? Well, it wouldn't be so much better if we made them here, particularly given that we now understand some of the problems in terms of supply lines that arise when your entire supply line comes from China. So, uh, you know, why, why, why are we manufacturing natural gas here sending, and, and these things sending it to China for them to make into plastics for us to then import back? Uh, it's 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 not just you know a waste of of our man, own manufacturing power, but it's also um, it's also less efficient, less energy efficient. I mean, it may be more efficient because they pay their workers less, and that may make it worthwhile. But at the same time, think about all the fuel that you're burning, sending that stuff halfway across the world and then back again. So you know, I think that there are creative ways that we can be more self-reliant or particularly in a hemispheric way. Like we're sending a lot of natural gas now to Mexico. 
And let's you know, call it we, the energy Monroe doctrine. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. If only some, so for some reason, the Monroe doctrine became some sort of like boogeyman bad word when I was, I used to teach international relations and uh, history of international relations. And we would teach about the Monroe doctrine. And everyone, like everyone in the, my entire class was coming in and saying like, it was horrible. The Monroe doctrine was terrible. It's a terrible thing. I was like, where are they all getting this? And, you know, apparently this is what they teach now in Latin American studies. It's not what I taught, but um, interpreted as, as vaguely imperialistic. Yeah, apparently, which is it, which which is so ironic because it was designed to keep out British imperialism from Latin America. That was the actual purpose behind the Monroe Doctrine. It was like British Spanish people stay out of our hemisphere, don't come colonize these countries again. But anyway, uh, kind of a, a off topic. But yeah, I've always envisioned. You know, we talk about energy independence, we talk about energy security, and um, I always thought that like American energy independence is kind of a myth. It's not really something even that we would want to do, it's not valuable, but kind of North American energy independence would be a much better concept to to look at because we are tied with, and interdependent with Canada and, and Mexico. And so why don't we look at a hemispheric independence as opposed to uh, national independence. So uh, Ellen, one last question that I have, um, how threatening do you think the uh, discussion surrounding various sorts of fracking bans are to the plastics industry right now? Those are targeted more toward uh, the burning of fossil fuels, but I would assume it's threatening um, because it would affect the feedstock itself. That's a really, really good, uh, good point and a, a really good question. And um, I think that it's concerning to a lot of these people because they, if anything, they do benefit from cheap feedstock and any kind of ban on um, fracking on federal lands uh, in particular, I think would be distressing to some of these manufacturers who really do benefit from um, this kind of feedstock. And if you look at, say, like the petrochemicals world, really, um, um, you know, we, we do, there are a lot of places that do petrochemicals, but, you know, I've had the opportunity to visit um, the petrochemicals. Basically, it's like a complex in Saudi Arabia. They have like an entire area that's basically like marked off for these huge refineries and petrochemical complexes. And, you know, it's desert. Nobody lives there. It's basically like, here's where we do our stuff. Here's where we make this stuff. And they want to, not only do they want to expand because they've got that feedstock right there at their fingertips, but they want to bring in the manufacturers of the products. So if they're making the components that are going to go into, say, detergent, they want to bring in the Korean detergent manufacturer that buys it to actually make their detergent in Saudi Arabia, as opposed to then to shipping it to Korea. And, you know, I think that that's something that we have to um, keep in mind is when we're looking at this kind of thing, will um, restricting our ability to produce energy in the United States, will that have an effect of basically resulting in the relocation of our manufacturing industries to places that are more favorable and that can get more favorable, um, you know, feedstock and, and more favorable manufacturing terms and things like that. Uh, do we really want the center of petrochemicals manufacturing to be Saudi Arabia? Now, Saudi Arabia thinks that's great. They see themselves as very well situated, you know, everything's great. And that may be fine logistically, but I think 
not just from a security perspective, but from an economic perspective, is that really what we want? Do we really want to make changes like that, which will say five, 10 years down the line result in the movement of industries abroad like that? I would think that that's something that we need to consider when we look at these kinds of bans that we're not, just because we ban it here doesn't mean that these products won't be produced. It doesn't mean that the oil and the natural gas won't be drilled for. It just means that we won't be doing it. Somebody else may be doing it. Now, Saudi Arabia has pretty good environmental standards. They have some of the lowest emissions, you know, out there, but Russia doesn't. Iraq doesn't, you know, there are a lot of places that don't, maybe it might be better environmentally to keep it local, to keep it domestic, where we do have strict controls and things and, and, and ways to reduce the amount of, uh, you know, flaring and of other things and, and of harmful things that get into the atmosphere, because it's all one atmosphere. It's not like what we do doesn't affect someone else. It's not like what China does doesn't affect us. It's all one atmosphere. Yeah, you jumped in there and stole my point. I was going to say <laughs> strong property rights and rule of law go a long way and obviously in protecting environmental um, problems. So since we have you here uh, this morning, you have a piece out at investing.com. I was wondering if you just want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, you talk a little bit about OPEC's next moves um, and yeah. just the, sort of the price of oil and things. So I guess, you know, how should we interpret? It looked like WTI was over $48 this morning, which... Uh, it seems to be completely divorced from things, but uh, yeah. how should we interpret that? And then uh, just want to talk a little bit about your column there too. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 almost like we're living in another world. I I, I think, and, and this has been happening basically since news of the vaccine hit in in November. We're basically seeing that prices, the price of oil, both Brent and WTI, are not um, really moving along with the fundamentals. And nowhere was this clearer than basically what happened this week. So um, both OPEC and the IEA, the International Energy um, Agency, released uh, their monthly kind of forecasts. And every month they make adjustments to the forecast. And basically every single time this year, they've adjusted it downward. And they adjusted them downward again. So there's basically saying that demand in 2020 is worse than we have thought it was going to be and demand in 2021 is going to be less than we thought it would be. And usually when the oil market sees these adjustments downward, it reacts negatively. And yet it didn't react negatively. In fact, prices went up. The price of Brent went to like almost 50, I think it hit 51 dollars, uh, which is the highest since like probably what, March, February, and the same with, with WTI. And I think with that, it, when um, the interesting thing, though, is that um, OPEC basically came out and said, or the, the president of OPEC said, you know, they're, they're supposed to meet in January, in the beginning of January, to decide whether they want to raise production again. They've already agreed they're going to raise production. O OPEC Plus is going to raise it by 500,000 barrels per day starting in January. But they're going to meet like every month now to, to determine whether they want to raise production, by how much, they want to lower it. So basically, they're considering another 500,000 barrel per day increase. And you see these reports, and it basically says, the fundamentals say we can't have it. it would say, say the oil market isn't isn't ready for this. If there's the, you know demand is down, production's up. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to get better. There are lockdowns all over the United States and Europe. 
the economy is you know, not growing as much, and yet oil prices go up. And so the big question is, what's going to happen in January? Is OPEC going to say, hey, um, so what? The price is going up. We'd be stupid not to take advantage of this and sell some more oil because no matter what we do, the price seems to go up anyway. Uh, and I think that that's the argument that you're going to see Russia and the UAE who've been pushing for, for increases in production. I think that's the argument they're going to make because they're, they're basically going to make this argument saying, yeah, well, you know, we said things were bad and prices went up. So, you know, clearly that means that the market can handle more oil. If we don't put it out there, somebody else is going to put it out there. Uh, and I think that that's a very difficult argument for a country like Saudi Arabia, which is really wanted to exercise much more discipline in terms of production and, and hold production steady. It's going to be very difficult for them to counter that argument because, um, it's, it's proven since at least November that the oil market doesn't really seem to care about the fundamentals and about demand. Okay, before we go, I would just encourage listeners to uh, check out the Energy Week podcast, which uh, Dr. Wall co-hosts with uh, uh, your co-host. It's Ryan Ray. Ryan, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you guys do a good job every week. You pick out a couple of stories and talk about it and then usually do some uh, analysis on just sort of oil prices and stuff. So big fan. Oh, thanks. It's it's really fun because, um, you know, it's it's kind of funny. Ryan and I have actually never met in person. But he's down oh. in Texas, kind of, you know, has a pulse of like what's going on there with with uh, companies and, and production and, and stuff like that. And and uh, so I think it's a it's a good mix should check it out yeah other than that is there uh anything else that you want to point our listeners to where can people go to find your work um so i also write uh for forbes so you can look me up there uh i write more more there about like technology and companies and and various things and then on investing.com we do more of like a market analysis uh and so uh check me out there also um for those who are interested you can follow me on twitter i'm at energized economy that's e-n-e-r-g-z-d economy our guest today has been dr ellen wall dr wall thank you for your time today thanks for having me 